0: Hello friends, welcome to the Christchurch Port Orange Midweek Podcast, where we deep dive into the scriptures we examined from the previous Sunday morning without the constraint of time, as well as discuss questions and topics of interest from members of our Christchurch family. I'm Pastor Jesse Jarvis, your host. Let's dive in. Welcome back, everybody, here to the first week in the month of June. We missed you last week. We uh, took a break from the podcast because we had an unusual Sunday, more of a family meeting type Sunday to talk about some potential changes in our missional strategy, and so we were not in our binge the Bible series that goes along with our six-month reading plan, but we're getting back into it today. and I'm excited to be joined by our worship and tech director, Bill Mayer. Hey guys, glad to be back. And I love the uh, tone of your voice, by the way. I listened to the podcast and I was like, what a nice compliment.
1: That's so weird. Cause like, you know how you, when you hear your own voice, you're like, who is that? Yeah. And that sounds terrible. I never want to hear my voice again. It's still, <laughs> when I hear myself on the podcast, that's how I feel. Is that still how you feel? It's how I feel. I don't feel like that singing on stage, but when I hear my voice in the podcast speaking, I'm like, wow. So
0: your speaking voice still feels that way.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I probably spend most of the time singing into a microphone. This today. is true.
0: Yeah. We're all very in tune to your voice, your singing voice.
1: Yeah, so it's it's still weird. I'm like, oh, gross.
0: <laughs> well, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and I enjoy the uh, co-host approach because yeah. you just get the variety. Because I'm not a watcher; I don't have time to watch anything, and I never really have been like, I don't really care what it looks like; I just want to listen. So, I listen to a bunch of different podcasts, and and I just get used to like people's personality gets built around their voice and the interactions, you know. So, anyway, I listened to our podcast just to check it out and see how things were sounding, and I was like, oh, I like the variation between Bill and my voice,
1: like. It works. It's also probably because I like, am like half an inch from the microphone, so there's like this oh, yeah. proximity effect that happens. It gives me a little more low end. Nice.
0: You're telling me all the tricks. Yeah, Audio, audio magic. Well, enough about us. We're excited that you're listening in, and as we navigate our way through the Gospels, uh, we are getting less and less questions. Maybe that's because this section of the Bible is far more familiar to our listening audience. Maybe it is because... Many of our initial engagers in the reading plan in six months have given up. I'm not sure. I don't want to think that way, but it's possible. But I did want to just give a big shout out to Alan and Rebecca. Alan and Rebecca have been engaging uh, nonstop with their thoughts from the text all the way through since January. I've gotten some great uh, encouragement also. Natalie sent me an email just saying thank you. and meant a lot. So for those of you who have been listening, Judy and John and and others who've reached out to just say how much you enjoy the podcast, thanks for doing that. I actually enjoy uh, doing this weekly probably as much as maybe you enjoy listening to it or more, so it's a joy for me, um, but we were joking just before we started recording that Rebecca's questions have been keeping the podcast alive, <laughs> so we'll get to those questions. Um, This past Sunday, we took a section of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18 and verses 15 to 20, which is um, tremendously practical advice for pursuing conflict resolution, and kind of talked about just the nature of um, human interactions and our propensity to talk about a situation or about a person or about an offense and not go to that person. It's just, I don't know if it's particularly cultural for our area or our time or or our culture, but um, we're far more likely to kind of give vent to our own feelings about a thing, and if we can find a listening ear, we enjoy the cathartic effect of being able to just share what's bothering us, and we don't give it a lot of thought. But as we examined the topic even briefly on Sunday, with a smattering of scriptures from the Proverbs and Matthew chapter 18, 15 to 20, and passages like Ephesians 4 and verse 29, the Bible really says a lot about our words, what we choose to say and what we choose to listen to, the effect of our words, and so we took some time to consider that, and it really struck me, as I mentioned on Sunday, I've, I've read Matthew 18 so many times and um, studied through it, and but when you listen to the, the gospel or you read the whole gospel, you start to recognize the, the really severely limited amount of content that's given to the most central figure in human history and the person who's at the center of our Christian faith and um, that Matthew chose to include these words from Jesus and it shows the importance in Jesus' mind of um, relationship, reconciliation, the, the, the one another commands of the New Testament about bearing with one another, and working stuff out. And so um, in the grand scheme of things, it really ought to get our attention. And so we took some time to to study that, and I really enjoyed that. I, one of the things I wanted to get into in that section of Scripture was about the step two. So if your brother offends you, go to your brother. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. And so that, that should happen kind of all the time. Um, there's a lot of stuff that we should learn to just overlook that doesn't need all of that hoopla. And if we were as committed to those courageous conversations, as I think Jesus wants us to be, I think a lot of times we'd go, you know what? I'm just going to let that go. Not a, not a big deal. Um, but when we do have an offense or something that we can't get over going and working it out with that person is the first step. And oftentimes the last step, because most of us love each other. And when we have a problem, we can talk about it and we have enough relationship and trust to, to be able to work out the details and, you know, say, you're sorry, hug it out, try again. And uh, so that kind of should be happening a lot. But when it doesn't go well, Jesus adds this contingency of going with another person. Um, And there's this phrase in there that the matter may be established uh, by one or two witnesses. And that phrase, and and Matthew's gospel in particular, is all about um, establishing truth, right? So you go back to Deuteronomy, you go back to the Old Testament law, many references in the Proverbs and Psalms. Where witness uh, establishing a true thing by the the testimony of two or three witnesses is a language surrounding like let's just get to the the truth of the matter. It's not about perspective. It's not about preference. It's really about establishing the facts, and that's what that's meant meant to do. You're you're bringing other people in, and uh, the the phraseology there really is to harken back to like, hey, your your brother's attempting to you know settle this out of court, so to speak. Um, but there was real harm done. And so like, let's bring in people who are adjacent to this situation, either by, um, nature of the relationship they share with us and the fact that they know us or that they were somehow witnesses to this or have some experience in the offense. And so I just wanted to mention that I didn't give that any time on Sunday. There was a lot of other things I wanted to talk about. Um, but the goal here is like revelatory. It's like, let's get to the heart of the matter and you know, there's a serious nature when you sit around a table with a group of people and they try to help you work out a thing. It really brings um, the importance of the relationships to the the front and center. And so, too often, we can just kind of make things about, oh, you're just too sensitive, or I don't, I, I don't, I just don't see eye to eye, or you know, whatever about. And um, I just love the seriousness of that. And of course, the next layer of that would be if that doesn't go well to like broaden the group. Jesus uses the term there the church, the ecclesia, the the called out ones. These are people who all have a, a mutual interest in the, the success of this relationship. And so he appeals to the broader community. You know, for us, we say church and we think of Sunday services or we think of large groups of people. But throughout the first century, churches were a little more than a dozen or two people in a home and within, you know, a um, couple hour walking distance from the next group of Christian people. And and so there was a, a much greater degree of intimacy, and so the church would have rung in the ears of Matthew's original readers a little differently than maybe it hits us. It doesn't mean you have to publicly shame anybody or talk about their personal offenses on a, on a Sunday morning, but um, but you really do want to like open up the circle so that this can become a, a community conversation. Uh, ultimately, for the the health and well being of the offender and the offended. So much so that Jesus concludes that if you if you refuse to listen even to the church, then that person ought to be to you a gentile or a tax collector. That's a way of saying you shouldn't presume that there's spiritual life there. So if if they reject everybody, it you know the, the offended party, the offended party and a friend, and then the whole group of people and everyone's appealing to the same repentance and change, and someone's unwilling, then that really becomes, you know. Evidence that there's not spiritual life, and that ties in very clearly with what Jesus says next about um, whatever you bind in heaven's bound on earth or bind on earth is bound in heaven. So this is a matter of you saying we're we're essentially disassociating ourselves with you as a Christian based on your behavior and the rejection of this appeal for repentance, and that's like has eternal consequences. And so it's very very heavy. Those 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 phrases are turned rather quickly in very short order. Um, but they're very, very serious. And so we try to bring that uh, into the, the sermon on Sunday to see the serious nature of, of our words and how we, how we relate to one another and what's on the line, like um, the church. I love that Jesus uses that, that term, the church, because it, it's, it brings us mindful of chap- chapter 16 of what he's building that will eventually overtake hell and um that that part of his body that belongs on the earth to fulfill his mission, and so there's a lot on the line, so we talked about that, and I, I just wanted to mention that last little piece in passing and um it also got my mind stirred up on um, Matthew's Gospel in particular, so we're just we just finished mark's Gospel, and um, there's a lot of academic conversations surrounding the, which gospels came first, and what were the sources for the writers of the gospels and um, in, in higher level academics, there's all this talk about the Q source and the J source and, um, the Yahwists and the, you know, there's, you know, you have Mark, but Mark had a source that Matthew shared that source, but we don't know who that source was. And so there's a lot of that, uh, text criticism and higher criticism that goes into trying to find the sources of the gospels behind the gospels. Um, for me, it always seemed pretty simple that Matthew's gospel appears to be written first. Um, and Ma- or I'm sorry, Mark's gospel appears to be written first, and Matthew's uh, source is Matthew. <laughs> so, you know he he did have a source, but I think it was just because he was there. Um, that was a little different. I know that's overly reductionistic, and some of you who are well studied may push back on that. But uh, Mark's gospel is likely the oldest. It's clunky and short and cut off, and it feels to me as though Mark was in a hurry to get the um, the testimony of Peter established in writing and also to create a tool, a literary tool that allowed uh, unbelievers to engage with um, the facts of who Jesus was and what he had done in a first century kind of a way. And a couple of the clues to that are that Mark repeatedly overuses the word suddenly or immediately, depending which English version you're reading. He's, and then this happened, and then suddenly, and then immediately, and then here, here, here. So it's got this kind of like fast paced On to the next thing. Boom, 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 boom. Um, it's also very clunky. It's Greek. It's clunky. It's not. It's not the kind of work you would consider. This sounds like someone's first draft. <laughs> they just pu- They just hit publish, and it's done because they needed to get out. And then uh, Mark's gospel has a um, a gloss of an ending. This is the snake handling gloss in chapter sixteen but the original oldest text end with and they were very afraid so the the tomb is empty but there's no where's jesus and what happened and and the disciples are gripped by fear and I, in my mind mark has always felt to me like an evangelistic tool like you're supposed to be hearing mark read or come to a a small gathering where mark would be read in an entertainment type fashion and you get all this m- massive information about this Jesus of Nazareth and all that he did and said, and then you get to the end and that's just abruptly ends and it leaves you asking the question like what happened? And you're, you're not, these Jesus followers aren't scared now. What happened? And it, it, it's like an evangelistic tool in my mind that uh, engages people to talk about the resurrection and the ascension, uh, talk about the boldness of the Holy spirit post Pentecost and to put people on the spot to make a decision based on what they've just heard about the person of Jesus. And so I think that existed in the, in the first century for some time. And then um, as it became more common, maybe as the other Gospels were written, uh, that the later ending was added on and may have been added on by Mark at some point. But, um, but the textual evidence suggests that that later ending uh, is, in fact, kind of added to make the Gospel feel like it comes to a close better. So I had me thinking about Matthew, his intentions, Mark's Gospel, as we just finished it. And so I thought it'd be interesting to just have a short conversation about why four Gospels. So I don't know if that's ever crossed your mind, but we have four Gospels and they're not biographies uh, of Jesus. They don't tell his life story. They don't help you to understand the the forces that shaped him in early childhood or celebrate all of his accolades. They, um, they're they very different. They're almost a, a genre of their own. Uh, I don't know of any other writing that captures a person's life in the same way that the gospels all do, so they all pick up the the early stages of Jesus' public ministry. With Matthew and Luke providing a little bit more backstory for their purposes, but John and Mark just go right into the the early ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus. And so it, Jesus is thirty years old and beginning his public ministry. And go—that's how those the two of the two of the four gospels begin. And so the focus then is. You know, in large part, the three-year ministry of Jesus and a bunch of the things that transpire that begin to build the themes that each of the gospel writers wants to communicate about Jesus, and then all the gospels have this same um, the same kind of feature, where they they come to a grinding halt and slow way down at the last week of Jesus' life, and then even slower the last night of Jesus' life, and so there's a large emphasis based on. The narrative and the timing um, and the amount of words dedicated to the death of jesus and so the gospels which means the good news um and the gospels in the original titles are the gospels according to the greek word kataz, according to so these are not the gospels of they're not this is not made up by matthew mark luke and john they are the gospel the good news of what happened that god became king and how did he do that through his own life death and resurrection this good news is uh, from the angle from the perspective of according to the testimony of Matthew Mark Luke and John and so the beauty of these four gospels is that they provide for us a multi-angled multifaceted perspective on the most important event in history and that is the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus and like anything if you ever want to establish something that actually happened The more angles by which you can see it, the more clarity you're going to get into the event itself. So part of the reason we're coming to you late this week, um, typically we post on Wednesday and this is not going to come to you on Wednesday because we're recording it on Wednesday. And we're recording it on Wednesday because on the way home from our men's meeting on Monday night, I was in an automobile accident about 10 o'clock. Somebody sped out of a gas station parking lot and sought to cross Four lanes and a turn lane of traffic, and make an immediate right hand turn. And there I was, and they just collected me, and we slid into the intersection together with my driver's side headlight in their passenger door. And then they fled the scene. So that was exciting. And um, so when I called the police and called 911, I was sad to learn that we are so understaffed in our police department that no one was available to respond to the call. So I gave up pursuit of following the car that hit me and allowed them to escape and I returned to the scene of the crime and waited for the police to arrive. After 45 minutes, no one had shown up and so I called 911 again and they said, yeah, we have a lot of really important calls. So sorry about that. Someone will be there eventually. And after another little bit of time, I called the non-emergency dispatch to ask if I could please go home (laughs) as leaving the scene of an accident is still a crime. But apparently that's not a big deal anymore so I had to go to the police station and file a police report and give my uh, testimony uh, about our hit and run it took me an hour and a half uh, to wait for a police officer to be available at the police station to take my testimony after I wrote it all out and it had me thinking about like what what has the justice system become I remember the first accident I was in Somebody called 911, and I don't even, This are the early days of cell phones, so not even everybody had a phone, and the police were there within like a minute, and uh, they were doing a, a whole report, an investigation, and everybody who had stopped was being interviewed about what they had seen, and an accident, with that many witnesses, you get a much better feel about what took place. My first accident, I caused, I was trying to avoid someone that pulled halfway out in front of me, and I jerked my wheel to the left and slid into a car waiting to make a left-hand turn. It was my fault. Um, I was 15 years old and the police came and they talked to everybody. And the guy I hit even said, here's what happened. And this lady pulled out in front of him and he tried to avoid it and hit me. And so the whole event was established by witnesses. And the more people see a thing and from different angles, the better of a picture you're going to get of what actually occurred. And this is what we get in the four gospels. You're getting four distinct individuals, two direct disciples of Jesus, Matthew and John, and two associates of the apostles, Luke the doctor, who was associated with the apostle Paul, and John Mark, who was uh, under the tutelage of Peter, reporting on what they had seen and heard about Jesus. And the beauty of these four gospels is that they all uh, synchronize to give us a beautiful picture. Um, There are some things in there that on first glance might seem to be contradictory, but with very easy explanation. They're easy to understand how they're apparent contradictions and not actual contradictions. But with the four Gospels, we're given just a beautiful 360 degree uh, perspective on the person and work of Jesus. And so I love that we have four of them. Matthew uh, Matthew Mark and Luke, um, they're called the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic, like looks the same because they follow very similar patterns, they contain much of the same um, data and tell many of the same stories. There's only a handful of items in each of them that are unique to their own writing and they carry a lot of the same stories. They look very, very similar. And then John comes along much later and is a very different um, message. It's composed differently, it's built differently, tells different things. There's a lot in John that's unique to John and there's very little that you're going to find that's in all four Gospels. So the things that are in all four Gospels are the, the betrayal of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Um, but in terms of content, John, John kind of stands alone. And the distinction of these Gospels is based on who wrote them and to whom they were written. So we've already kind of mentioned that Mark's Gospel was likely written first, and it's written in just really... Um, accessible language and common language and it was that means it's easily circulated, widely circulated. It was it had the chopped off ending there, so it, it brought you to a conversation with the person who had shared it with you. And so I think it was a powerful early evangelistic tool. and it became kind of the baseline by which Matthew and Luke wrote and composed their gospels. So by the time Matthew and Luke um, set pen to paper, Mark's gospel had w- been widely um, circulated. And so they were able to play off of a lot of what was already known, but to then take that information plus their own information. And Luke had done a lot of his own homework. And Matthew had seen a lot with his own eyes, but to write to two distinct audiences and with two distinct st- styles. So Matthew, of course, was the tax collector, Levi, and was a early disciple of Jesus and one of the apostles. And so he had... He had uh, write firsthand close perspective on so much of the many of the things that happened, but he was also writing with a distinct purpose. And that was to uh, make a polemic or an apology for Jesus as a fulfillment of the whole old Testament. And so again and again and again in Matthew's gospel, you're going to get this phrase. um, And it was to fulfill, to fulfill the scriptures in order to fulfill the scriptures or as it is written. And so he makes, I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of allusions and direct quotations to the old Testament to show that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, that anyone reading the Old Testament should have come to see and expect. Um, and he does that in just brilliant fashion. And so you'll, you'll also notice features in Matthew's gospel where like as a Jew writing to Jews, he doesn't use the name of God. And so he's, he references the kingdom of heaven instead of the kingdom of God. And that would have been because of who he was seeking to reach and uh, the form and fashion in which he was writing. And so you're going to get a lot of those different things. We talked a little bit in the podcast already about Matthew's genealogy and his inclusion of uh, the foreign women, Rahab and Ruth, and um, these women who had played a role in the genealogy of of Jesus. And so there's also seeds for inclusion. It was written to a Jewish audience, but it was also uh, made for the Jewish audience to recognize that this is a global movement. It actually always has been. And now Jesus has brought about the fulfillment of that global movement. And this is why Matthew's gospel ends with the Great Commission in chapter 28 and verses 18 to 20. And so this is the angle that we get from Matthew. So Mark is clunky and early and accessible, evangelistic and chopped off. And Matthew is is, um, beautifully written, eloquent, written to Jews by a Jew, meant to make connections to the Old Testament, which is why I believe the early father's put matthew first you kind of assume matthew was written first because it comes in chronological order first but really it was not um and it was written largely based on the form of mark's gospel but it so beautifully connects the old testament to the new testament by matthew's insightful connection of the fulfillment of jesus to the old testament prophecies that um, it makes a great first book into the new testament And that brings us to Luke, and uh, Luke, of course, sets out to write an orderly account of all that had occurred, and then his sequel, Acts, um, all that Jesus continued to do um, through the apostles and through the early church. And so he puts together this two-part volume, two-volume part um, story of Jesus and then the early church. And um, of course, he is meticulous in his investigation. He collects all sorts of uh, testimony. This is why the things that are unique to Luke's gospel uh, come to us because of uh, interviews he carried out, conversations that he had, and so we get a lot of insight about um, Mary, Jesus' mother, and the things that she experienced surrounding um, the nativity and the, the prophecy concerning his birth, and the birth narrative, and um, interactions like with Simeon and Anna in the temple, as Jesus was dedicated, and so there's a lot of really cool stuff that's in Luke that's not elsewhere. And then Luke also has an audience and a purpose. So Luke is writing to a Gentile audience to show that this is not just a sect of Judaism, but this is actually God's fulfillment. Good news of great joy for all people. And so Luke goes to great uh, trouble to show uh, the nature of the universal nature of the gospel and um, the interactions that Jesus had with all, all sorts of foreign peoples and the things that he said and how all those things culminated. and... And then he brings that into uh, common era reality in the book of Acts to see the, the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit coming and all these different languages being an expression of God's harvest and then the spreading of the gospel in this concentric circles of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And so it's got a very... Um, global missional element and so it's written to an audience that may not be as familiar with judaism um, but needs to have some backstory to make sense out of the person of jesus and so it's uh, fa- fantastic and the three of those like i mentioned synoptic gospels gospels go together and you can see a lot of the similarities then of course john's gospel comes al- al- along much later so there's a, there's always debate about when these books were written um, but John's Gospel is just distinct and different. I just love John's Gospel. I think many people cherish John's gospel. Um, it's written with just an artistic flair. Uh, there's these these like many, many, many sets of three that that John sees the world as you know head, heart, hand, and Father, Son, Holy Spirit. and there's all these different ways that three things are coming together to make one thing and you're gonna get that over and over and over again. And then of course, John sets up his gospel in these, um, two halves, and so you get the, the the book of signs and the book of sayings, and you can kind of look to see, okay, these, these are the miracles of Jesus that serve as evidence of the power of he is who he says he is, and then here's this revelation of Jesus that comes through him uh, telling telling and revealing who he actually is, and in the midst of those two component parts, John layers all of these sets of seven, sets of this, the I am sayings of Jesus, and so you get seven of them, Jesus saying, I am you know, the bread of life and the light of the world and the true vine, seven, seven of those sayings. And then also there's a layer of him responding to questions about his, his, his own identity with just the words, I am. And then there's also another layer of seven of Jesus saying things about himself and ending before Abraham was, I am. And so you get three sets of seven that, I mean, John's, I mean, it's so fascinating and brilliantly written. And I mean, the composition is just incredible. And so, um, but again, you have John who's a different sort of person. And now John is likely in his eighties, maybe even his nineties when he finalizes his gospel and it becomes widely circulated. And so he also has a purpose. And that purpose is to correct some early heresy about the, the humanity of Jesus and kind of thoughts against the divinity of Jesus. And so he is very, very serious about establishing the divinity of Christ Um, This is why he kind of hijacks the opening words of Genesis to tie Jesus all the way back to the word that was at the beginning. And throughout the the gospel, John is revealing Jesus in his power and in his glory and in his equality with the Father. And so these themes continue to run through John's gospel. And so he's got, you know, he kind of comes out of left field. He's that late-to-the-party character who's telling the story from yet a fourth angle, that really fills out that picture and overcomes some of the weaknesses of having these other three gospels written so closely together and along the same frame. And so he breaks the mold, and so we get John's gospel. And I just think it's beautiful that we have them. Um, so I didn't get any questions about that, but that was just what was on the top of my head.
1: Very nice. Well, I'll just, um, I guess I'll just rant for a minute on something that i think is interesting about the synoptic gospels is even though they use like the same material they don't use it in the same way like
0: mm-hmm.
1: like uh luke 15 uh, he tells the story about the shepherd that leaves the 99 to go after the one and then you know at the end you get all the angels in heaven rejoice over the one being saved explicitly in uh the form of salvation and because he's in this setting is that jesus is in a group of Um, Pharisees and tax collectors and quote unquote sinners in the same thing. And he's kind of showing this thing, whereas Luke is using, or sorry, Matthew in Matthew 18 is using the same exact story. Yep. And he says, you know, the one shepherd that leaves the 99, but the context for Matthew is not salvation. Mm -hmm. It's church correction. Like go out there and win your brother and bring him back. Yep. So it's just like, you can get lost trying to be horizontal and thinking that they mean the same thing when they don't. Right. It's all like kind of uh, something to consider. I think that's really changed my Bible reading is like, what's the authorial intent? What did that author try to, what is he trying to say to you? Like, it's like, I hear people say that Paul's like scatterbrained, but they're not following along with his train of thought. They're like, oh, he's over here. Now he's over there. And now he's back over here again. But it's like really, you know, train of thought. And it's like uh, another example is like Matthew five or six, when he's talking about, um, like giving, there's like this section on giving, and he goes, giving, 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 giving. And then there's this phrase that's like, uh, if you have a good eye, your mm-hmm. whole body's full of light. And if that like if your eye is bad, uh, you know, how bad is that darkness? And then he goes right back into giving, giving, giving. But like, I- I've heard people kind of potentially preach about this in the wrong way, because that was a Jewish idiom about giving. Having a good eye means you're a generous giver, but you yeah. miss that if you're not paying attention to what's happening happening in the local context of the text. Like what's this author, what's he trying to say to me? Right. So I think that's like something to consider um, when going horizontally between these gospels.
0: Yep. Yeah. It's really, a, that's a really good point because they aren't used the same way. Sometimes we, we do try to, or people do, and we are people. We try to um, like make everything be one size fits all. And that's where a lot of the kind of skeptic conversations about the, contradictions quote-unquote in the bible come from right so another instance comes to my mind example is um, the use of leaven so jesus talks about beware of the leaven of the pharisees and you know the the disciples fumble around because oh he knows we forgot the bread that's what he's talking about no 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 no. so leaven is is all is bad over and over and over again leaven is is And it's synonymous in the Old Testament with sin, right? So you put leaven out of your house during the Passover and you eat unleavened bread. And the picture here is you purge the leaven. And that idiom is used again and again and again in the New Testament a lot by Jesus and then also um, by the Apostle Paul. But Jesus also at one point says that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. That when you know yeast, it goes into a, a little lump of dough and it spreads and it leavens the whole lump. And so if you think every time Jesus is talking about leaven, it's bad... Well, then you're going to think there's some bad corruption that's going on inside the kingdom of heaven and then you're going to grab a hold of you know jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven being like the mustard seed it's the smallest seed of the garden plants but it grows into the biggest tree and the birds of the heaven find their rest there or land there however the phrase phraseology is but a lot of times i've heard theologians say like okay birds are always bad birds are a sign of judgment and so the, there's this element of which the kingdom is 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 growing and it goes from really, really small and Jesus goes into the ground unless a grain of wheat falls and dies. You know, he, all the idioms apply, but the, the birds there are meant to be like, um, there's going to be like corruption inside of the kingdom. And well, maybe <laughs> if birds are always bad, but not necessarily birds are always bad. Maybe it's a picture of, like, maybe the nations having a place to come and land and having, they're not a part of the thing as it is organically, but now that they're benefiting from it. And there's, so you, you have to take into consideration, like Bill mentioned, how is this author using this story? The other thing that's really important to remember is Jesus was an itinerant speaker. So even the chosen isn't really gather isn't really um, capturing this well. I'm, I'm loving the chosen, but there's this idea of kind of like Jesus is having these little small group discussions around with people. And maybe there's sometimes there's a little crowd of people that gathers, but the big, the big one, the big sermon is the sermon on the mountain. Thousands of people are gathered. But, but if you read the gospels, you'll see that Jesus continues to leave and go town to town, to town, to town, to town, moving on. And people are compelling him to stay, but he says, I got to go because I'm, I was sent to preach. And so, One of the things I can tell you about being an itinerant preacher is you have a lot of the same stories and a lot of the same examples, but sometimes they work to tell one truth and sometimes they work to tell a whole other truth. And so Jesus wasn't, it wasn't like Jesus only said the story about leaving the 99 and going after the one, one time. He likely used the story with multiple groups of people in multiple places and against multiple problems. And so if he's telling that story in a setting where people are giving up on each other and walking away from each other, then maybe he can use that to talk about the impulse to pursue someone who's offended you or someone who's hurt you or whatever. But then he also could use that to talk about the value of a person to God. And he could also use that to talk about, well, if you're judging people because they're different from you and you think that they're other or they're less than you, this is the way he ends the story of the prodigal son, well, then you're going to miss the point of God's heart is to go after broken people. You know, we say things like hurt people, hurt people, but if you allow the hurt you've experienced to separate you from everyone else before long, you're just alone. And so there's this, this impulse to go. That's what I I call the missionary heart of God. And so Jesus has the power and the freedom to use his own stories and idioms and parables in any which way that he wants at any time. And these, these gospel writers were there or were associates of people who were there and heard him use these in different ways. And so, you know, if you try to overly synchronize, especially the synoptic gospels, you'll be like, wow, was it a, was it a sermon on a mountain? Was it a sermon in a field? Was it a, what, what happened here? Well, maybe it was both. Maybe Jesus told, you know, did he say blessed be the poor or blessed be the poor in spirit? Well, maybe in different cities, he used different phrases based on who his hearers were. And so, um, you have to kind of take these things into consideration. So there's a lot of overlap and there's a lot of, um, clear parts of the scripture to help you interpret the less clear. But you also have to, like Bill said, you have to really read by going what's happening right here. And this is why we need a whole podcast on hermeneutics. I think that, I think that should be coming up real soon. So yes, yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> I think it'd be really helpful for us to, um, have a, um, I don't know, popular level conversation about the tools that you need to accurately interpret the scriptures.
1: I think that would be glory.
0: Yeah. I would love that. Just So many,
1: so many things are on my heart where I'm like, man, I wish if you just had a couple like just basic tools, a hammer and a screwdriver uh huh, and maybe like an electric drill, <laughs> you'd be set. You could do like so many mm-hmm. things.
0: Yeah. I think too many of us have that, that, uh, the workflow with the WD 40 and the duct tape. <laughs> Does it move? Yes. No. Well, should yeah. it?
1: <laughs> <laughs> like,
0: that's the only tools we have in our, t- our toolbox are read the, the scripture until something pops you in the eyeball and then that's god's word to you today no matter what it means or meant or whatever so yeah maybe we need a few more tools in our toolbox well enough of our bantering about these four gospels and their beauty and their differences Um, let's take a let's take a gander here up inside of our questions so alan who actually recently just relocated to North Carolina and is now uh, only joining us via the internet. Um, He has sent an email and he's asking about Mark chapter six and verse 11. So he says Mark chapter six and verse 11 is a very popular verse of scripture for many people I know. Shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Specifically seems to be comforting to many people. That specific piece of the verse seems contrary to the gospel verse that convey going the extra mile, especially regarding forgiveness. Matthew 18, 21, 22, which we talked about on Sunday, actually in passing, that's that's the uh, parable of the unmerciful servant, um, comes to mind. My personal belief is that Mark six eleven is used as an excuse to write people off. As with many scripture interpretations, it depends on context. Oh, there's that need for a hermeneutic class again. I believe that Mark 6.11 is based on the idea that people in those towns are actively sinning against Jesus by refusing to get even give the apostles the courtesy of listening to the good news. Thus, this could be interpreted as a sin against God himself. That's far different than a sin against man, where forgiving 70 times would be what Jesus would expect of us. Have I totally missed the point? do you see how some would see this as selective scriptural justification? great great question and there's multiple layers to your question so like let's talk about the the passage itself. So Jesus um, sends out the 12 and then later on the 70 to fulfill these precursors of the missional element of the church and he imbues them with power over demonic, forces and gives them the strength to heal disease, and they're really going out without him in pairs of two to communicate the truth about Jesus and to reiterate this good news message. The essence of this good news is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of God is at hand, and so Jesus, as he began to preach, everywhere he went, he taught truth but the response, the appropriate response was repentance. It was a turning away from one course of living and believing and turning toward a new course of believing and living. And so this metanoia, this changing of one's mind, is what was at the center of the um, Apostle's teaching about Jesus so they shared stories about Jesus what he had done who he was I'm sure some connection to Old Testament texts that immediately became familiar to them although many of them didn't until later and so they would go from town to town and there would be towns that would reject them and not give them a hearing and so they were told to shake the dust off their sandals now that that was a, that was an idiom that uh, was familiar in the 1st century and one that we may not be familiar with today and it didn't really have so much to do about writing people off. I mean, that is essentially the net effect. You're essentially moving on. But the shaking of the dust from your shoes is basically saying, I'm leaving you to the, um, the judgment that comes from you having rejected what we came here to tell you. And so I don't want to be associated with you in so much as I don't want the dirt from your land stuck in the bottom of my kids so that's the idiom it's basically saying okay i'm washing my hands like i came to do my thing and you rejected it and now that's on you and so it's a public statement of that was your chance and so that's kind of where the the phrase comes from so it's not necessarily jesus giving the apostles like permission to like okay you're dead to me or to lack compassion it really was a warning it's a it's a tangible practical object objective Kind of demonstration of i would not do that if i were you and now i don't want to be associated with you based on your response and it's also a way of saying and to the next place so don't waste any more time here and um so that's the idiom of course human human people are oftentimes quick to give up on others and to write them off and so when we read something like that where jesus specifically gives instructions about what to do in a particular instance then that may feel like um, that may feel like a, a right impulse. So I was reminded of a an old TD Jakes sermon that I listened to over and over and over again after I'd been abandoned by a number of um, longtime friends and co leaders. And um, he had this sermon, and he 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 said, uh, "If somebody can walk away from you, let them go." <laughs> don't beg somebody to love you, don't beg somebody to stay with you, and everybody's cheering, and you know, it makes you feel good to go, you know what, that's right, you know, just let them go, like, I'm moving forward, and I think there's an impulse in all of us to, like, have that bit of justification to go, all right, I just want to be free from this situation, and put all the weight on you, and all the responsibility on you, and I'm moving on, and uh, there's lots, and lots, and lots of times, and that's not appropriate. It just isn't. I think it flies in the face of a little bit of what we talked about on Sunday from Matthew 18, about the impulse to go and be reconciled. Really, it's coming down to a specific missionary journey where Jesus is saying, go and preach to people who ought to be prepared to receive you. Jesus wasn't sending them to Gentile country. He was sending them to villages in the nation of Israel, populated by people who had a messianic expectation. They They were waiting for Messiah. They were talking about Messiah. They were... They were hoping in uh, freedom from Rome. This was commonplace conversation. They were in and out of synagogue. These, are, these were the people who should have received this good news willingly and gladly and immediately. And where there was unbelief, Jesus says, don't waste another moment and make sure that they know um, that, that this is on their heads. And so I uh, don't know that you can really stretch that verse into Somebody ticked you off or um, said something bad about you, and now you're completely free to just, you know, blacklist them. So I agree with your uh, impulse there. Hopefully that clears things up a little bit. Great question. So our other podcast question comes from Rebecca. And her question is from John chapter 6 and verse 42. She says, Do we know how public the knowledge of the virgin birth was to people who lived with Jesus when he started? his public ministry. Did everyone have a view of him as one born like everyone else and therefore have a more difficult time believing he was God's son, Messiah? In chapter 7, people were thinking he was demon-possessed. Playing devil's advocate, how could they be discerning between believing him or being demon-possessed, especially if they really believed he was Mary and Joseph's son and nothing more? We see also in chapter 7, verses 40 to 52, the differing opinions of who they thought he was and maybe for a purpose that they um that all were not going to believe something else i noticed i don't think i had before was john 11 49 to 53 that caiaphas had prophesied that jesus would die for the jewish nation yeah that's a great verse i love that better that one man should die for us all than all of us should perish you're like oh you don't know how close to the truth you are um how that prophecy would have been perceived by the Jews prior to, and then seeing when it came true. And then finally, she says, John 13, 27. And actually I'll pause here because we're getting away from, we're getting into another very complex question. And so I don't want to lose the the first one. So in terms of the public knowledge of the virgin birth, yeah, that, that is really limited to Matthew's gospel. Again, Matthew grabs a hold of that as evidence that Jesus is the Messiah and he ties that into the prophet Isaiah, who talked about, like, the virgin shall conceive. And and this is one of the complex ways in which um, the New Testament writers interpret the Old Testament. We'll actually get into that if we talk about hermeneutics, because um, if you go back to Isaiah and you read that passage, Jesus, this is a timestamp. stamp. Um, one who is a virgin now will give birth, and this is how you will know. But, but it also had a prophetic element, a distinct prophetic element about a thing that was going to happen. And so Matthew saying, hey, Jesus is that thing. And I know that because listen to the story of how this went down. Um, there was this young couple and they weren't married yet. And the, the husband-to-be was going to divorce the wife because she was found to be with child. But it wasn't, it wasn't through immorality. It was by the Holy Spirit. And so a lot of times we think, oh, the virgin birth of Jesus is some kind of like um, proof positive that he's the son of God because he has no human father. Um, Then you'd be thinking, well, why didn't the other gospel writers put that in there? That seems kind of important. But the picture here is not just the nature of the divinity of Jesus per se. I mean, that's a clear um, statement by Jesus, especially through John's gospel again and again and again and again. It's not unclear. Um, Matthew harnesses that as fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But yes, certainly, I mean, even in the gospel narrative, and I should have looked this one up so I could give you the reference before we started the podcast, but Um, Even when Jesus was publicly preaching, he was, he was criticized and it was said of him, like, don't we know this, this man's mother and father, isn't this not the carpenter's son? So there was not, there was not broad awareness of the virgin birth. And that was not something that Jesus started off his sermons with. (laughs) Hey everybody, I'm Jesus from Nazareth. Um, My father is God. I was not conceived in natural, like it just never came up. Um, It didn't need to be the central point of of, uh, Jesus message.
1: I think, um, do you remember when, uh, I think it was Isaiah, but like, wasn't he talking to King Ahab and God's like, give me a sign. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, all right, you want to, you don't want to pick a sign. Yep. I'll give I'll you the sign. sign. Yeah. yeah. And so I think it's something to consider about Matthew also is that he's proving, going through scripture, yep. proving these things. That's one of them. Yep. You know, Hey, the Messiah is going to come virgin birth. Yep. And there it is. And
0: there it is. Yep. And then he of course he gives the story, the backup story. And then Luke, as well right and and that's why this is important it's also important to recognize again we've said this so many times in the podcast but as like um, modernist western relativist humanist minds like our minds are shaped by the world we grew up in and the western minds is very different than the eastern mind and the modern mind is just very different from the ancient mind so like you know we know a lot of things and we've benefited from scientific discovery and you know heliocentricity and gravity and um, light and time travel and you know, particle physics like there's all kinds of access to knowledge that we have that was just unknown in the first century and for eons before that, and the minds of our um, ancestors in faith, they were shaped by the story like their 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 whole ideology was shaped around story and the story was, uh, creation and covenant. It was about the God who made the world and everything in it and the covenants that he had made with humankind and the the plan, and the purpose that he had, but it was all set in relationship to God. And so they just, they just didn't think about and ask the same types of questions um, that we ask. And so signs for them were like a way in which God would confirm his promise. So a sign went along with the covenant. Whenever there's a promise, if God says he's going to do a thing and you're at a place where you're wondering, is God going to be faithful to that thing? Then you ask for a sign, And which is, which is why it's so ironic that when Jesus was preaching and teaching and claiming to be the Messiah of God, the son of God, and revealing hidden truths about God, that the Jews say, show us a sign. He's like, I am the sign. Like uh, God made a covenant and I'm, I'm literally here, (laughs) it's it's really quite comical, you know, this is why he says, you know, um, it's an evil generation that asks for a sign, not one will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, right, I'm going to go into the ground, and on the third day, I'm going to come out, and so, um, this is how signs worked, this is how scriptures were, and so it really is important that we get in the head of the uh, original audience, and the original authors, This is where all this stuff's going to come to life. So good. Um, What was part of the other question that Rebecca had asked
1: Uh, about Caiaphas?
0: About Caiaphas, yeah, yeah. That's just that's just beautiful, and you got to love the way that John puts that together. What was that? That was eleven, chapter eleven. I think it's forty-nine to fifty-three. That's a great story. You have it up. You want to read it?
1: Um,
0: Yeah. It's really cool.
1: Here from 47. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. Here's your signs again. Yeah. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation.
0: Okay, wait, right there. Uh, so uh, this is the the impulse of John is that they may believe. So you're going to get that again and again and again and again and again. And even at the end, when he gives the purpose statement for his book, these things, Jesus had done so much more that could have been collected here, but these things have been written so that you may believe. And so here he's putting that into the mouths of the fear-based teachers of the law who are saying, if we let this persist, the, the effect of that will be that all will believe. Which is true, and that's what John was trying to actually get to. Like, this is what you should do with this. So they were right, but they were wrong. And then he goes to, to show their motive. If everyone believes what will happen to us is that we'll be destroyed by the Romans. And so this is where they're, they're fear based instead of faith based, but their um, uh, presumption about what will happen is the case. Sorry.
1: It's interesting. They're like, uh, they're really like self focused. Like, uh-huh. oh, we like our place and our nation, and yeah. we're in charge of Yeah. Yes, yeah, so we don't like Jesus. This is the
0: na- <laughs> this is the nature of like fear. So fear is always self preserving, right? So you you take this this um this disposition and you contrast that to what we looked at just a few weeks ago with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. No fear, no fear. Completely complete faith. My my God can and my God will. And even if He doesn't, I'm not doing that. And so there's this boldness and this lack of self preservation that's associated with faith. And then along with fear, there's self-preservation. If, he, if this happens, then people will believe. And if that happens, then we're going to be destroyed and our country is going to be destroyed. And so they end up with these kind of noble-sounding motives. Like, we gotta, we got to shut this down so that we can preserve our nation. But really, it's nothing more than fear and self-preservation. Uh, verse 49. But
1: one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Mm -hmm. Now, this is my favorite part. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, (laughs) but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. Don't you love that? I, my most interesting thing about this and like some of it has like shaped how I think is that God used Caiaphas unbeliever totally against Jesus to prophesy Yeah. and then here we are saying oh well you don't know anything you know what I mean like God <laughs> speaks through Balaam's donkey we just translated that in my Hebrew class that was yeah. awesome Yeah. but like God can prophesy through anything like yeah. whatever he wants so uh, you know if you go back to our two or three witnesses back in Matthew like yeah. anybody can come up to you and say something and they could be right so I don't you know, I'm not I'm thinking. Of, anybody that comes up to me says anything. I'm like, all right, I gotta
0: check. Real I gotta fast. check that, yeah. Hold on, just real quick, uh-huh. let me check. <laughs> this is one of the things I love about. Uh, we're gonna get this. Get into this in Revelation too. When you get the two witnesses, uh-huh. that that they demonstrate power and they speak boldly, and then they're they're killed and they lie in the street, and then they come back to life. And like, what's the imagery there? You know, uh, but that the testimony of two witnesses and how that plays into the whole scripture. Um, but you're right. The the other theme that we've seen run through here is like God's going to do what God's going to do. And God can speak through anyone. It doesn't matter who they are, where they're at, what their motives are. And that was in fact prophecy. And uh, that's just beautiful. I love that John puts that in there. It's fantastic. But yeah, no, that prophecy would not have been perceived. It would have been after the death and resurrection of Jesus that everyone went, whoa, remember when Caiaphas said that he <laughs> was spot on. Super good. Okay, so we'll wrap. We'll wrap up. I think we, I'm not sure we've been close to an hour, but um, the last little section um, that Rebecca asked about is from John chapter 13 and verse 27, and she wants to know our thoughts on Judas and John stating when he took the bread that Satan entered him. Do we think it was a demon possession that caused him to betray Jesus? Was it his own sin? I was thinking of the chosen here. That comes up again, and how Judas has been portrayed so far. Do we believe he was a faithful disciple up until the end? Or John does say he helped himself to the money since he was the keeper of it. Accurate observation or perception after the fact when the gospels are written. Hmm? So was sin and greed the motivation? Or was it Satan there at the end? Would Jesus have been tried, arrested, crucified as sacrifice anyways? Had not a disciple given away his location? As we know, he came in order to be a sacrifice. Therefore, evil had to happen to make the sacrifice possible. Interesting debate. So um, this is a little fun insight into Tiffany and my marriage. So we have had this ongoing debate for like seriously 20 years. Over the scripture? Yes. Wow. Yeah, the two of us, I don't know how many times, at least least half a dozen times, maybe 10 times, we've spent like more than an hour talking about this particular instance. And part of the reason is, um, you know, the, the... One of the oldest, most difficult uh, dichotomies in the Bible is that between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility, right? So if God is sovereign, if he is all powerful and in control of everything and shapes the future and can do whatever he wants, how free is our will, right? And then if we have a free will having been created in the image of God, which it appears that the scripture implies, then... Is it possible that the things we do actually limit the power of God? And how do these things work? And so you end up finding whole um, like ideologies or theologies that are built upon the preservation of the sovereignty of God and defense of the sovereignty of God, and they tend to become deterministic and fatalistic, almost as if nothing you do matters, That that you are kind of completely under bondage and that your freedom is really nothing more than a myth and a mirage that you can only do that which you are meant to do. And then there's theological distinctives that place all the emphasis on the preservation of human free will to the point that God is essentially I don't know, handicapped or has his hands tied behind his back when it comes to his ability to influence or overtake what it is that we choose to do. And so people tend to fall on one side or the other. But there's but there's a syncretism that happens when you look to the actual scriptures, because in the scriptures, you will often, and I would almost say always find that there is a component or a layer of the sovereignty of God. And in the Judas narrative, um, you know, he, he, he who uh, shared my bread lifted up his heel against me. There's this prophetic uh, treachery that's played into the eternal purpose of God. And the scriptures play that out that essentially Judas was destined to betray Jesus. It was in the plan from the beginning. And so God's, God's got this, uh, death of Jesus this crucifixion that happened at the right time in, in complete, um, total synchrony with the Passover and his ministry and under, along with the Roman officials and the, the high Jewish high priest and the Pharisees. And you have all these multiple players, even what we talked about with Caiaphas's prophecy, all coming together, and they required the the betrayal of Jesus by one of his disciples that was forecast and foreshadowed prophetically in the Old Testament, and so Jesus even said it in John chapter thirteen. He's like, "One of you is going to betray me." And they're asking, "Is it, it's not me? It's not me." Even Judas said, "It's not me. Surely not me. Is it me?" And John, Jesus, and John's Gospel whispers to John, the one the one who dips his bread, like this is the one right here, and he points him out. So, like you have this human level. That This stuff is transpiring in real time and it has all sorts of human motivations, but it's also completely in keeping with the sovereignty of God and his purposes. And then you also have this added third layer that is the forces of evil. It says that Satan entered him. And so you're going, okay, was it Satan or was it Judas? And if, was it Judas or was it God? Was it God and Satan and Judas? Like, like what is going on here? And so where you kind of fall in your interpretive method or in your presuppositions as a grid to understand the scriptures, if you find yourself seeking to defend the sovereignty of God or defend human free will or limit the powers of evil, you're going to kind of come to this particular instance um, from a different angle. And the reason this instance is such a hot spot is not only because you have all three elements, the sovereignty of God, the prophecies that are specifically connected to Judas and the the type of treachery and the the 30 pieces of silver, which we saw in Zechariah, like there's all this stuff that's like, man, this was in the long game. Like God, God was seeing this in, in eternity past and like detailing it for us. And so God's involved. And then Judas is involved that, the his, his dishonesty and his treachery, the scripture writers, all of them have a negative, have like a negative um, perceptive perception of Judas. And then of course he goes and hangs himself and then you have the, the the enemy. And so this is all all three layers are there, but not only are all three layers there, but now you're centering around the most um let's see how do I say this? the the death and resurrection of Jesus are the pivotal events of human history. And they are the fulfillment, the center of God's covenant with humankind. And they are detailed and pers- and described before us in insane levels of detail throughout the whole entire old testament and they are the facts upon which the entire new covenant church and all the new testament are built upon and so like you might say like god is god is sovereign and powerful and he can do anything he wants and sometimes he intervenes in human history like to harden pharaoh's heart and deliver the israelites out of bondage in egypt but for the most part you're kind of an open theist you're kind of like god got this whole thing running and he's sitting back and he's making sure everything goes the way that he wants and we pray and he answers but most of the time he doesn't really get involved and if he does get involved, it's kind of like a miracle. But for the most part, he doesn't. And then you go, well, sometimes he's got to get involved, especially if he's going to bring about his purposes on the earth. And nowhere is that more important than at the cross of Jesus. And so you're, now you're taking this hot spot of sovereignty of God, human responsibility, power, and limited uh, influence of the evil one, all of these things overlaying on top of the most important event that ever took place and that so much of the Old Testament prophecy is specifically referring to. And so now you're asking the question, if, if God does get involved, how often? And may he get more involved at more important times? Or is he just as involved in every aspect of your personal life every single day as he was at bringing about the betrayal of Christ and his ultimate crucifixion and resurrection? Okay, so here,
1: check this out. So I'm thinking about this, and this is what I'm thinking right now. Yeah. Cause I, I know I've breezed through this a bunch and I'm like, wow, look at that. That's crazy. So I just cheated and I looked in the Greek and I was like, okay, what is this entered? And it's like pretty locative, like entering a city, yep. entering all this. So it's like pretty straightforward. But then I'm like thinking this way, what's the difference
0: mm-hmm.
1: between being demon possessed yep and this scripture? I don't think there is any. Yeah. Right. Like if you give yourself over to demons, you got like the dude at you got like, they're all Mm-mm. acting funny and doing Mm-mm. weird stuff that I don't think they would normally do. Mm-mm. And we obviously at this point in John, we know Judas is not part of the program. Right. He's like, oh, I'm, I'm in it for me. I'm getting money, stealing money out of the box. Yeah. I'm like, you know, he's just following along for his own benefit and he's not in it for what Jesus is preaching. So how is it any different? that Satan would enter him and you know, more or less control him if he's giving himself over to that than another demon like that we've seen throughout the other Gospels you know, where Jesus is setting them free. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because it also seems like Jesus is like, oh, I, I see you, Satan. You've just entered Judas. Now go do what you need to do.
0: Yep. Yeah, and so J- John in particular has been writing the Judas betrayal into his Gospel. So even all the way back to chapter 6, John is saying like Jesus knew he was going to betray him. I think it's 64. So like John's writing this in like, okay, Jesus, Jesus, it's almost like Jesus chose Judas knowing he was not legit. And then J- Jesus is interacting with Judas, knowing that he's going to be the one. Jesus is revealing that to the other disciples at the last supper. And even when he is greeted with a kiss, is it with a kiss that you betray the son of man? So, um, the, one of the questions that Tiffany and I have debated over is was Judas saved? Was Judas saved? And so if you think okay well Judas put Jesus, G, G, Judas followed Jesus he wanted to be a Jesus follower he went along with this whole program um, he had an obvious moment of regret because he gave the money back and then he took his own life and so he's obviously broken remorseful or was Judas and this is what it comes back to your underlying theology. So if you have a, let's say, a um, Protestant Calvinistic theology, then you have an idea in your head that the sovereignty of God and salvation means that from history, prehistory, from eternity past, God has foreordained or decided who is going to be redeemed and saved and who is reprobate and going to be destroyed and that that is fixed and locked in and so Judas has to be one of those two. And obviously in that rendering, he would be in the reprobate. And so the, his suicide becomes evidence of his hopelessness and lack of, um, of actual true repentance. And therefore, he's all bad. Now, the early church, ev- everybody hates Judas. Like if you read any of the church fathers, they have no one has anything good to say about Judas, nothing redemptive at all. But if you ask yourself the question, okay, what is it that justifies a person or um, saves a person? And is it belief in, in Jesus? Did Judas do a thing that was unforgivable? And is there maybe not this categories, biblically, of eternally elect to salvation and eternally elect to condemnation? So this is where your presupposition about the sovereignty of God and the role of human free will or the limitation of human free will and then the power of the evil one come into question. And so you will answer questions like that. Okay, was Judas um, ever genuinely, quote-unquote, converted? Now, obviously, there's a lot of nuance there because things were different after the resurrection ascension of Jesus and so on. But it seems clear to me that the way that the Scripture writers speak of Judas is that he was not faithful to Jesus, that his motives were always... Um, self-centered so he he comes on the scene like anybody else would have assuming that jesus is the messiah with certain expectations about what that means and seeking to benefit himself by proximity to jesus and at some point which john refers to in chapter six when he realized wait a second jesus isn't going to do the things i thought jesus was going to do and so i've made all this investment in following him and i need to get some of that investment back and it's at that point that judas begins to look for a way to betray jesus which means god has this in this um, eternal purpose and plan that's being fulfilled specifically jesus is aligned with it and, and aware of it jesus brings judas on as a disciple judas has an impulse that's self-centered and then at some point decides he's looking for an opportunity to betray jesus and it just so happens quote unquote just so happens that in the perfect timing and plan of god when the Passover Lamb is chosen and on this final Passover that that uh, Jesus is in fact betrayed by Judas and that the devil also is looking. I, I love the way Matthew chapter 4 in the Temptation of Jesus ends that says that and the devil left him looking for an opportunity. He's looking for a chance to to go after him again. And so the whole gospel t- narrative, you 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 have the devil in the background, like looking for a weakness, looking for an entry point to be able to come against Jesus again. And so, in this moment of treachery from Judas, um, that is when he is opened up to the powers of darkness and fulfills that. And so, there's also an element of straight evil. So there was a willing, unbelieving Judas, and there was a self-sacrificing, all-powerful, omnipotent God, and there was a defeated foe who's seeking to wreak havoc on the person and purpose of God. And all of those purposes aligned right there at the, at the um, point of Judas of Iscariot.
1: It's interesting to think like you put, you put it back in perspective, like all powerful Jesus could have just cast out this demon. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, no, no, this
0: is the plan. This is the plan. We're
1: going to all going according to plan right now.
0: In fact, what does he say in Matthew chapter 16 when Right after he says, you are Peter and on this rock, I build my church. And then Peter, he forecasts his death. And Peter says, far, no, no, far be it from me, Lord. And what does he say? Get behind me, Satan. He goes, you're against, you're against me fulfilling what I'm here to do. And so you see even an unwitting Satan being wrapped up into the purposes of God. He's seeking to like physically destroy, but little does he know. And I think C.S. Lewis really captures this in the Narnia, in the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, when Aslan is traded for, um, not Edmund, I'm sorry. Is it Edmund? I'm, um, I'm blanking. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, um, and so they're like, oh, he's going to die, but he's, he's, he doesn't stay dead. His power is in, in self-sacrifice. And so like, this is the strength. And he goes now and now he's, he comes back and he's able to fly, you know, like unrestrained power. And so this is the, this is the picture. But this is totally
1: a side note, but maybe it'll just like spin some gears everywhere. Yeah. Is uh, like, you know, he says, get behind me, Satan. I wonder now, Mm -hmm. because Matthew is Jewish writing to Jews. And we just went over this uh, translation of numbers Mm -hmm. uh, with Balaam, numbers 22. Yep. And it says, God literally says, God, uh, they use the word Satan, Mm -hmm. which is the same word. Yeah. He stood as an adversary. Against Balaam in the road. Yep. And so I'm like wondering. He's like, "Get behind me, adversary." Or is he referring to,
0: you know, the, the person, the of actual Satan. dude? Yeah. Yeah. This is really tricky. This is another one that maybe we'll maybe we'll use that as an um like a uh, a practice sesh for hermeneutics because there, there's a lot of things we think about the devil or or Satan that we don't recognize. Like that's not the way it's actually used in the Bible. And so Satan, ha, Satan is the adversary. Um, and it can be used as like a specific person or it can be used of any person that stands in your way. And so, yes, God himself becomes an ad. He says, I am an adversary from time to time. There's actually
1: a verb there yeah. in, in, uh, or I mean, not a verb, it's a noun.
0: Yeah. It's the like, Hasatan, the Nate. Yeah, no, no,
1: sorry. I was right. It was a verb in there. He,
0: in the Balaam story? Yeah. In the Balaam story. Oh, okay. It's a verb. Okay. Okay. Interesting. A, yeah, it is interesting. So also you have to take those pieces and parts together, but, um, yeah, there is fascinating and you can muse endlessly. On these things. So I just want to say, and we didn't, I actually like purposefully didn't give you concluding thoughts on that passage. Um, the answer is not in a theological distinctive. The answer is in asking and answering the question, how was John describing this to you? How, what was John's intention in the way that he framed this and what ought you to be thinking about and so, like, you, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get an answer to your question because a lot of times the Bible is not trying to answer all your questions, but it is trying to present to you a reality. And that reality is according to the foreknowledge of God, Christ Jesus died at your hands. And this is the message of Peter in Acts chapter 2. Like, yes, you did it. Yes, the devil was involved. Yes, God meant it for good. And this is the story of the Bible from front to back. In a world that is um, characterized by evil, unbelief, and treachery. God prevails in ways that you would not ever predict and he does so through self-sacrificing love.
1: Yeah, cuz he could have prevented all of that all and of he said, "No, I love you mm-hmm. and I want to show you my love through dying for you." Yep. Almighty God, I'm going to die for you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you'll read that I, I I again, I should have looked up this verse, but even in Matthew's gospel, he said nothing to them without parables. Because he didn't want them to understand. Because if they have understood, then they would have turned in repentance. And it's through their hard-heartedness, those first century Jews, that the death of the Messiah came about. And so Jesus kept things hidden. Um, th- this was the opposite of what happened in Jonah. Jonah preached a, not repent. He preached 40 days, God's burning this place to the ground because your great evil has reached his ears. And they, the Ninevites, the, the Babylonians, they, they repented Hoping against hope with no expectation that God would forgive them. And he did. And so this is what Jesus is saying. Like, I, I came here at this time to be rejected by this people. And so he even shrouded his His revelation um, with parable for that same purpose.
1: Yeah, that's uh, Matthew 13, 34. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, Isaiah also where he's like after uh, Isaiah 6, after he see- encounters God and he's like, they're going to see and not believe and yeah. hear and not understand.
0: Yeah, just like they're idols. have eyes but can't see and mouths but can't speak and ears that can't hear (laughs) that's awesome right Mm -hmm. all right this was fun thanks guys for joining us we'll be back uh lord willing and uh no more uh, automotive trouble (laughs) we'll be back next wednesday thanks for your patience and thanks for joining us don't forget to send us your questions and thoughts if you have any encouragements or if you want to just share things that god's showing you it doesn't have to come in the form of a question we'd love to hear from you and uh, we look forward to being with you again we hope you enjoyed this week's deep dive into the scriptures. Our goal is to help you know Jesus better so that you can implement your identity in Christ, engage in your unique purpose and calling, and create community around your relationship with Jesus. For more content like this and opportunities to connect with us in person, find us online at joinwithjesus.org.